everybody. Good to see all of you. I think our junior high are on a retreat. We miss them, but those students who remain behind, we're glad they're here. This is an important weekend for lots of reasons. One of the biggest reasons is it's a time, particularly tomorrow, to remember uh, one of truly America's great heroes, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who literally gave his life for the cause of reconciling the races. He believed, and rightly so, that we are all created equal in God's sight. Doesn't matter the color of our skin, the language we speak, where we came from, whether we're a male or female or a child. He understood as a minister that God's word teaches us that we've been created in the image of God. And he gave his life for that. It was his desire that we would live up to our American value and creed, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men or all human beings are created equal. And yet, the interesting challenge is how can so many people, like in our country, where still many people say they believe in God, how can so many people who say they believe in God still act, speak, and treat others as though they're inferior? because of the color of their skin, or because they're a woman or a child? Why is there right now so much hatred in our culture between political parties and between other groups and individuals? I think so much of this comes down to identity, not knowing who we are. As many people have been writing and saying, America, our culture right now is in a huge identity crisis both uh, tribally and individually. And until we solve that and see it the right way, we're gonna continue to struggle like we do with so many of the ills in our, in our culture. But the good news is we, you and I, can reset our identity. And if we reset our identity, it will help us go a long ways toward influencing the hearts and lives of people around us to do the same thing. So I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark where we have begun a journey in our series Reset, looking at what does it mean to live like Jesus, resetting our focus, resetting our attitude, and now resetting our identity. We know we can't live like Jesus without the help of his Holy Spirit, who he's freely given to us, and without the guidance, the navigation of God's word, which is what we're looking at today. Now, Mark chapter 3 opens up with Jesus entering into a synagogue on a Sabbath, like our Sunday. And when he comes in, there's a man there with a withered hand. Jesus' critics are also there. And they're holding their breath to see if he heals the man and breaks the rules on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus knows that they're waiting for their gotcha moment. And so he asks the man with a withered hand to stand. And then he asks the question of everybody, but he was really aiming toward the critics. Is it better to do good or evil on the Sabbath? To save a life or destroy a life? And the critics just sat there like the frozen chosen. They didn't say a word. 
And it deeply saddened Jesus' spirit and made him angry. And so he told the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. As the man stretched out his hand, it came to life again. It was entirely healed. Instead of applause or praise to God for what he had just done, here's how they responded in verse 6. At once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Where's that coming from, huh? Why would anybody want to kill Jesus? One of the most gentle men who ever lived. Jesus, compassionate, feeding the hungry, touching, cleansing the sick, doing miracles, raising the dead, casting demons out of people. Why? Why would you want to crucify him? In fact, as you go in, down the passage of Mark chapter 3, and you get to about verse uh, 20 or so, they call in the big guns from Jerusalem. And the religious leaders and critics from Jerusalem show up, and they do something terrible. They spread fake news about Jesus. Have you ever heard of fake news? <clears throat> and the fake news they spread about him is that he's, he's a devil. He's satanic. That's where his power comes from, to do all the miracles that he does and to cast out demons in particular. He does it by the very power of the devil himself. He's in league with Satan. He's in league with Beelzebub, the Philistine god of demons, the prince of demons. That's how he's doing it. It was so ridiculous what they were saying that I am sure that the common person sitting there listening to that, hearing that, had to scratch their head and thought to themselves, these guys are really whacked. In fact, Jesus just brings out the, the illogic that they're using, the, the, the poor thinking that they're using in the passage of Scripture. For instance, he says in verse 23, how can Satan cast out Satan? A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me give you this illustration, Jesus said. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I wonder if this is kind of a reference that Jesus is making to himself. He's coming to the strong man's house, Satan, his kingdom. Satan's the God of this world. And being stronger, Jesus, the God-man, is binding him up. He's actually setting people free. His kingdom's invading their kingdom. People are being set free. But then Jesus says something remarkable in verse 28. He says, I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequence. He told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. You know, you read a verse like that, and some of us right away begin to obsess. <gasps> Have I committed the unpardonable sin? I want you to know that if you're worried about it, you haven't. You haven't. I mean, this sin that's being described here is someone turning their back on God, totally rejecting God, becoming reprobate, and attributing everything that God does to Satan himself. Still, the question is, why? 
Why? How could these men, these are guys who know the Old Testament, forward or backwards. These are, these are men who know the rules about the rules. These are men who lived like really squeaky clean moral lives, who prayed and who fasted and gave alms. How <laughs> can these guys want to kill Jesus? Much less than that, call him the devil. But it's not just, it's not just his critics. His family gets in on the act too. Yeah, Mary, her other sons and daughters. Look what it says in verse 21. It says, when his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. He's crazy. He's lost it mentally. He's flipped. And when it says they wanted to take him away, literally in the Greek there, it means they wanted to arrest him. They wanted to bind him and take him home. Sequester him for a while. <laughs> I figure out what in the world has gone wrong with him. I mean, this is Mary. This is the one whom the angel Gabriel appeared and said, your son will be conceived by the Holy Spirit, will be the son of the Most High, and he will be a savior, and his kingdom will reign and have no end. And she comes along and thinks he's out of his mind. Why? Why do the critics of Jesus call him the devil? Why does the family of Jesus want to put him in a straitjacket? The answer is one simple word. Pride. Pride. Let's all say it together. We know it so well. One, two, three. You ready? Pride. Yes, we all struggle with it. Where does pride reside? In our ego. It's really hard to separate the two. Pride and ego kind of go together. It is the mother of all sins. You know that, right? Pride is what caused Satan to be ejected out of God's presence. Pride is what led Adam and Eve to say, we don't need God. We can be our own God. To believe the lie, they could be their own God. And how do I know that story is true? And how do I know that happened? Because we're all their children and we all have the same thing in common. We're all trying to be our own God. We're all trying to run our own lives. Let's be honest with each other. Isn't that true? We all want to be in control. So we all have that nature. It is the root to racism. It is the cause of injustice, adultery, fornication, every immorality you can imagine. It is the cause of hatred in our culture to these days. Violence. It all comes down to pride. And pride's associated with identity. And identity is associated with self-esteem and worth. And until we understand pride and learn how to deal with it, none of these other things are going to go away. So the question becomes, what is pride? Well, I want to begin to answer that question by asking you to turn with me for just a few minutes over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to look at an incident that was going on in a Corinthian church there in Greece amongst the the new members, they were, they were kind of divided up, kind of a little political thing going on. Can you imagine that happening in a church, people not agreeing with each other? Factions in a church? Of course, you know that's possible, right? <laughs> not Wooddale Church, but certainly every other church in the Twin Cities has that issue. So what's going on here? You've got people who are saying, you know what, we're morally superior, we're spiritually superior because we follow, we follow Peter. And Peter's the one that Jesus said, on this rock I'll build my church, the gates of hell shall not prevail. We are, we are in the Peter party. We are 
We are spiritual. You guys should follow our example. Others say, no, no, no. Remember how Peter denied Jesus? We are of Apollos. Apollos, this great apologetic teacher, this great preacher, this great orator. Man, can he ever teach God's word. I can sit and listen to him for an hour. He's our man. He's the one that we follow. And others say, no, no, no. It's all about the apostle Paul. What an intellect. What a thinker. We love Paul. We're about Paul. Paul's the guy. I'm on Paul's side. It would be like, you know, it would be like a little competition. We follow Kyle, the campus pastor here. He's our man. You know, he's the guy. He's got it down. He's such a great leader. He's a good teacher. We follow Paul. And somebody else says, no, we follow, we follow Marcia, Pastor Dale's wife. We all know who has the brains. We all know who's pulling the switches behind the curtain. It's about her. And then on the list could go, right? Everybody kind of gets their little tribe, gets their little party. That's what's going on. And Paul says, are you guys crazy? Why? Did a man, did Peter, did Paulus, did I, did someone, did one of us die for your sins? Are we the ones that have forgiven you? Are we the ones that have changed your life? No. And he says in verse 23 at the end, he says, don't you realize you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Get yourself aligned. That's where identity comes from. That's where your esteem, that's where your sense of worth and value should be coming from. And then he shows how he has experienced change and transformation in his pride. Boy, we need to get this, especially how many parents in the room? I just hope you really dial in to be some helpful things here today. Maybe some painful, but some very helpful things. So he gives us kind of his change story beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, so look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ, right? We're nobodies. We're just servants of Christ who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Now, a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. Verse 3, very important. He says, as for me, remember, I'm just a servant. I'm just carrying out God's will. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority or court. In other words, I, I, don't, I don't take much stock in what the public's opinion of me is or of people in cultural or even civil authority, he says. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. Notice what he's saying is, I don't, I don't even care what I think of me. My conscience is clear. But that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't go making judgments about anyone ahead of time. Remember last weekend we said, let's have, a, let's have an attitude of forgiveness and not a spirit of judgment. How'd you do this week? He said before, he says, let's not judge others ahead of time before the Lord returns. For he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. Verse 6. Dear brothers and sisters, I have used Apollos and myself to illustrate what I've been saying. If you pay attention to what I have quoted from the scriptures, you won't be proud. Circle that, highlight it, we'll come back to it, all right? If you listen to me, in other words, follow my example, you won't be proud of one of your leaders at the expense of the other. For what gives you the right to make such a judgment? What do you have that God hasn't given you? You, you don't get your worth and value from these guys. You get it from what God's given to you, is what he's saying. And if everything you have is from God, you, why boast as though it were not? Why are you boasting about something that none of us can give you or you can achieve? Why are you letting that 
happen in your life. Now, the word I want you to come back to is found there again in verse 6. It's that word proud. And the reason I want you to look at that word with me for a moment is because it's an unusual word that Paul uses there for pride. It is a Greek word, and it's, it's just pronounced phuseo. If you transliterate it, it's F-O-O-S-E-E-O-O, phuseo. And phuseo is interesting because it means to inflate something. Now, I know this is gross, especially right before lunch, but it's like a stomach inflated with gas. That's, that's the picture he's drawing about the ego. And what he's saying is, you know, don't, don't inflate. Don't get your ego puffed up. So I want us to look at this for a moment. And I want to draw from some helpful insight from uh, Tim Keller, who I think back in 2012 wrote a little book on, on identity, self-image, etc. And he focuses on this word for CEO, and he gives some great insight. And he describes it uh, with four other words. I've kind of changed them up a little bit and added some things to it. But he says, when it comes to talking about fusio, this word that Paul uses for pride, number one, he says, what he's trying to say to us is that human pride is, in essence, empty. Empty. Now, rather than me trying to um, uh, explain all of that, let me, let me give you a visual illustration of it, okay? See how this goes. That's a little ego. We got to help it out. How about a little bit more, huh? Whoa, that's it. I don't want that snapping in my face. All right. And notice it says, what on it? Ego. ego. All right. Pride, ego. Okay. He says it's empty. This, this little balloon is filled with air. It's puffed up. I blew air into it. There's no content in there. Just gas. Just gas. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, said that it is our human nature to try to build our worth our value, our ego, our sense of pride on anything but God. Remember what Adam and Eve said? Well, I want to be my own God. And that's why I know all of us are related to Adam and Eve. Like I said earlier, we all want to be God. It's a spiritual illusion that we have that somehow we can achieve worth, value, significance by our own efforts, by doing Whatever will give us back that significance, that value, and we always get our value and significance from others. It's human nature. I feel good about myself or bad about myself based on people's opinions, people's verdicts over my life. It is just the way it works, whether we like it or not. It's just how it works. And that's what the Corinthians are doing. All right? It's, it's, just, it's just empty, which then leads to a second word, busy. The ego is busy, 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 busy. Busy trying to feel full. B busy trying, trying to find significance and, and value. That's what the Corinthians are doing. I'm valuable, I'm significant. I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Apollos. Who do you follow? <laughs> right? And, and that's what's going on in Mark chapter 3. And throughout the Gospels, that's the big battle Jesus has with the Pharisees, I think. I mean, Jesus shows up, and what does he do to them? He takes away their audience. He takes away their applause. I mean, they're used to being the big shots. They're used to everyone kind of looking at them going, I could never be that spiritual. Wow, that guy's spiritual. Pretty girl walked by, and he banged his head on the wall instead of looking. 
What a man of God. He fasts, he prays, he gives alms. I can never be like that, which then made them feel really good about themselves. You know that story Jesus tells over in Luke chapter 18? It's a little parable he makes up about a Pharisee and a tax collector, the scum of the earth in those days. They go, they both go to pray, all right? And uh, the tax collector speaks up and he says, I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and give you a tenth of my income. Woo-woo, look at me. And that's what angered them, that Jesus would hang out with people like that. Because those are the people they contrasted themselves to, to say, look how holy we are. Who does Jesus think he is? Why is he doing this? That's why... You know, that's why they labeled him. Because see, that's what happens when we're trying to build our own ego. We compare, we boast, and we label. And, you know, if you can label someone, you can dehumanize them. If you can dehumanize somebody, you can do all kinds of things to them. You, you feel like you have the right to make fun of them, the right to mock them, the right to enslave them, the right to crucify them. It's a dangerous thing to label people. It's a dangerous thing because you take away their significance and their meaning. You lump them all together and then you find cause for however you want to think and treat them. It's it's just not a healthy thing. It's not a good thing. And so Jesus has taken away their applause. He's taken away and he's he's gaining an audience and, and they want to kill him for it. Because it's taken away from them. They are the rule keepers. They're the children of Moses. They are the children of Abraham. He's the devil. (laughs) And that's his problem his family has. The problem that his family has is that Jesus is making them look bad in front of the people they want to look good in front of. And he does that to you and me, doesn't he? There's some people you and I want to look good in front of. Our friends at school, people at work, in the neighborhood. And in order to look good in front of them, that means we can't follow Jesus. So then that means if I follow Jesus, he makes me look bad in front of the people I want to look good in front of. Let's take him home and put him in the closet for a while. He's just creating too much heat for us here in Nazareth. Because when Jesus shows up in Nazareth later on, what are they, what are they, what's their opinion of him in Nazareth? He grew up here. What's he doing saying all these things, doing these miracles? They try to shove him off a cliff. Busy. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, has a chapter on pride. I want you to listen to what he says about pride. He said, pride is something that by nature is competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having more of it than the next person. You may think you're proud of being successful or intelligent or good-looking, but you really aren't. You're only proud of being more successful, more intelligent, more good-looking than other people. When you are in the presence of people who are much more successful, intelligent, and good-looking than you, you lose all pleasure in what you had because you really had no pleasure in it. You are proud of it. Pride is the pleasure of having more than the next person. Pride is the pleasure of being more than the next person. It's a dirty little secret, but it's true, isn't it? If we really stop and think about it, ah, there's a lot of truth to it. Even as believers, we struggle still with pride, which leads us to a third word, painful. It's painful. How many of you have ever said, you hurt my feelings? That's just it's a, like a 12-step group. Well, I'll admit it, okay? Hurt my feelings. Got my feelings hurt. You realize your feelings, it's not your feelings that are hurt. 
It's your ego that got hurt. Your feelings are just expressing it. It's our ego. It's our pride that gets hurt. And why? Because our pride is fragile. Our pride is fragile. When something gets inflated like this, what's the potential? It'll what? Get deflated. Oh, what's happening to my ego? I can't believe you said that about me. I can't believe you think that about me. I can't believe you said that about me and posted it on Facebook. <laughs> you tweeted that about me? And that's what happens, right? And as soon as it happens, we look for somebody, our parents, a friend, anybody that will come along and go, you're great, you're wonderful, there's nobody like you, you're perfect. Ah. And then somebody else comes along and does the same thing again, right? And that's, isn't that the cycle so many of us live with? Isn't that the struggle, those of us who are parents, isn't that the struggle our children live with every day? Trying to feel good about themselves, trying to have a sense of value, worth, significance, only to have it just dissipate. And what do we do? We pump them up again. It's just the wrong way to deal with it. It's just the wrong way to deal with it, which then begs the question, what's the right way to deal with it? Paul gave it to us. It's simple but profound. He says, here's how I've learned to deal with it. Come back to verse 3. He says, as for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. You know what Paul, in essence, says? I don't really care anymore what you think about me. I don't care what the culture thinks about me, what the teacher thinks about me, what the coach thinks about me, what the judge thinks about me, what a political party thinks about me. I don't care anymore. I don't even care what I think about me. <laughs> I don't even care what I think about me. My worth and my value is no longer beholding to your evaluation of me. Now, please, don't misunderstood don't misunderstand what I just said. you got to get this clear, okay? Because there, there, are, there are those in the culture who say amen to what I just said, but then watch what happens. We, and, and parents do this, friends do this, psychologists do this, and I'm a proponent of counseling, so I, this is not a diss in any way on therapists and counseling. But what's wrong is when I say to somebody or I lead somebody to think, that's right. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about you. What matters is what you think about you. What matters is what you think about you. So here's what I want you to do. You come up with your own values, your own standards, and then just judge yourself by your own values and your own standards. Now think about how whack that is for just a moment. I don't know about you, and I think this is true in the, you know, the Twin Cities, especially in this kind of culture, my standards over myself, man, they're, they're way up here. I never meet those. I never meet those. So the, the, the tendency for me is to be pretty down on myself. How about you? I'm never as good as I want to be. I never preach as good as I want to preach. I never lead as good as I want to lead. I'm never the husband I want to be or the father or the grandfather I want to be. I fall short in so many ways. I fail to meet my own standards. So I don't need somebody else to come along and deflate me. I deflate myself. And then you help as well. That makes it really bad. Do you get what I'm trying to say? That's the worst thing you can say to somebody. 
Create your own standards. Live by those. What matters is that you're pleased to yourself. Well, people are generally not pleased to themselves because our standards come from the world. Our standards come from our peers and from our environment. I think about myself the way I think I'm supposed to think about myself. And then I can't even meet those. In essence, what Paul is saying is I've learned to get to the place in my life where, you're, where I have a very low opinion about your opinion about me and I have even a lower opinion about my own opinion about me. And by the way, what was Paul's opinion about himself? Well, if you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. I am the worst sinner. He didn't say I was. He says I am the worst sinner, which is really weird. Here's Paul, one of the most influential men who ever lived in history, who was a godly man, who lived a, a life of confidence and, and calm. He had his moments, but of, of calm and boldness. Yet on the other hand, he says, I'm the worst sinner that's ever lived. I don't know about you, but if I believe, and I do, at times especially, that I'm the worst sinner that's ever lived, that usually leads to a pretty, pretty big inferiority complex. How can he walk around saying, I'm the worst sinner, and yet be so confident and have such peace and such, such grace operating in his life? Because he's learned something that we all need to learn. Paul no longer connects. Get this? He no longer connects his failures or successes, his sin, shame, guilt, or victories to his identity. He's unhitched that wagon. He no longer connects his self-worth, his image, his abilities and talent and successes, his failure, his guilt, his shame, is no longer connected to his identity. His identity, his worth, and his value is no longer drawn from any of those things. Paul no longer performs for a verdict, and we all do. We all draw our sense of worth and value by nature from what everybody else thinks about us. We've already been talking about that. Paul no longer performs for a verdict. Why? Because the verdict has already been made. What verdict? The verdict of God through Christ Jesus. Paul, I've chosen you. Paul, I love you unconditionally. Paul, I've forgiven you. Paul, you are my favorite. And God feels the same way about you. You're as, the Father Jesus is so fond of you. You are chosen and loved by God. It has nothing to do with you. It's, it's unconditional love he gives to you. You can't merit. You don't earn it. He, he just, you're the apple of his eye. Why? Because of the performance of Christ. Christ's performance gives me my identity, my worth, and my value. Not you, not the world, not anybody else. Parents, can I just talk to you for a minute? We got to work on this. Because we're so caught up in this, this culture that we live in, without even realizing it, we send a message to our kids all the time that their identity comes, their, comes from their performance. Let me see that report card. What kind of grades did you get? Did you make first chair? Are you first string? What school are we going to try to get you in? What kind of grades do you have to get? What kind of activities do you have to participate in to get into that school? You want to be this kind of person, earn that kind of money, live in this kind of house, don't you? You want to marry that 
person with that kind of image, don't you? Here's the kind of clothes you need to buy. We are feeding the addiction. We are reinforcing the message of Satan himself that your value, your worth to us, to the world, has to do with your performance. It's so wrong. Right? But listen, I understand. I know, I know, I know. It is so hard to break away from that. But see, instead of doing my best for God's approval, here's the deal. What I want to teach my kids is because God loves you, just give him your best. Whatever your best is. You know, for some people, the best is an A+. For other people, the best is a C+. Just give your best. But no, no matter no, no matter what grade you get, God still loves you. You're, you're, you're loved by him. You matter to him. You're valued by him. You know, wouldn't our whole culture change if we could just get there? I mean, I mean so many evils in our world would just begin to change if we drew our security from the right person. So you've all been wondering, why, why, why do you have Buzz Lightyear up there? That's the only reason I've been paying attention. Why? <laughs> well, Toy Story, you know, there's this wooden little toy uh, called Woody, right? Toy cowboy. And in, in one of the stories, he tells Buzz, he says, Buzz, I, I, I hate to tell you this, but I'm paraphrasing a bit, but uh, you're just an action figure. You are not a true space hero. You are just a toy. And Buzz is like, what? That's not true. It's not true. So he tries to fly and he fails. <laughs> He fails. And all of a sudden, he's grief-stricken with the reality that he's just a toy. He says, I am just a stupid, useless toy. And a little later on, Woody comes along to comfort his friend. He says, you don't get it, do you? He says, look, at, look through that window. Do you see, you see that kid? You see that kid? All right. He doesn't love you because you're a space hero. He loves you because you're his. And Buzz picks up one of his feet. And he looks on the bottom. And he sees in permanent marker ink the name of that little boy. And it dawns on him. Yeah, he loves me because I'm his. Now that's a cartoon. You're real. And God loves you because you're his. It has nothing to do with your performance. He's your creator. He did all the performing to get you back. Would you write this down? Just two lessons. Here's the first one. By God's help, can't do it on my own. I aim daily. It's something you got to do every day to practice forgetting myself by remembering whose I am. Am. In fact, let's say it together. Ready? By God's help, I aim daily to practice forgetting myself by remembering whose I am. Just forget about yourself. No matter what anybody else thinks of you, it doesn't matter what you think about you, just remember whose you are, whose I am. You parents, remind your kids whose they are and treat them like they're his. I love the way Mark chapter 3 ends. And yes, I know I'm preaching over time and all that stuff, but there's no big football game on right after. <laughs> Give some time to Jesus. Is that okay? Yep. All right. All right. 
Mark, Mark chapter 3. You know, you got to call out the stuff you know people are worried about, all right? So Mark chapter 3, verse 31 says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. We know why, don't we? They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus. Someone said, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Boy, that's embarrassing sometimes, isn't it? That's a different sermon, right? Verse 33, Jesus replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at them. He looked at each, you know, each person in the crowd. He scanned their faces and their eyes. And what he said next had to have been so powerful, had to be so healing. He says, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. I just love those words because you know what Jesus just said? He just said, you want to know who my family is? You're my family. And the way he's going to make them his family is he's going to die on the cross for their sins. And doing God's will is a matter of recognizing who Jesus is and putting our faith and trust in him. Last lesson for today. By God's help, I aim daily to practice forgetting about myself so I can be free to treat others the way God treats me, like family. That's how our culture is going to be healed. That's how our families are going to be healed. When I, when I draw my significance and my worth and my identity from who Jesus is and what he's done for me, and instead of being puffed up, I get filled up with his love and his grace and his goodness and his spirit. And then in that freedom, because see, now I don't need to use you anymore. In that freedom, I treat you like family. You know, sometimes a person doesn't get into the family until they're treated like family, Right? Start treating people like family, and they'll join the family. That's what it's all about, resetting our identity. Let's pray. Father God, I humble myself before you, and I recognize, Lord, that like all of us, I too struggle with an ego and pride that I try to fill with approval and success, and then, Lord, it gets deflated by sin and failure. I thank you for reminding me today that it's not, it's not, who I am. It's not what I accomplish or how I feel. It's whose I am. A permanent marker written in blood across my life. You're mine. Paid for purchase by Jesus Christ. Praise you for that, Lord. And I pray that we would all come to know that. And Lord, I pray that we would be so overwhelmed by it that we would start looking at others differently speaking and treating them like family. Not feeling superior, not feeling inferior. Feeling loved by Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.